Hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever." And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In the roughly seven years that I have been here at Harvest, um, we have had, um, by that time stretch, an unusual concentration of funerals this year, in 2022, since the beginning of this year. Um, As a pastor, as I've been thinking about Easter and the resurrection from the dead in light of all of these funerals that we've had in the last few months, thinking about the process of preparing for these funerals, uh, preparing for a funeral is always unique. Every person who dies was a unique person who reflected the glory of God in a unique way. And part of preparing for a funeral is trying to capture that, trying to understand that, trying to encapsulate that person's life and the way in which that person glorified God in whatever way during the course of his or her life. But as a pastor, I always know that funerals always bring unique challenges as well. There are always questions that you can't answer when it comes to a funeral, whether you are talking about an 80-year-old man who loved the Lord, who lived a life of, of love and devotion and worship and service to the Lord all of his life, or whether you're talking about a five-year-old who was taken from our midst too soon. And in the midst of this, preparing for funerals, being a pastor, you always feel so inadequate. What can I say to capture this? What can I say to address these questions? 
And there's a special poignant sense of difficulty in trying to answer these things and trying to address these questions and these doubts and these, this pain and this sorrow and to bring comfort to these difficult situations. But it's that poignant pain in the midst of death and sorrow that always, always drives us back to the gospel. The unshakable, immovable foundation of the gospel that our only hope in life and in death Our only comfort is that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been with us normally, regularly, you know that right now we're normally, regularly in the middle of a sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, where we have a very zoomed-in, focused look on the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, Right now, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and looking carefully at His teaching on the nature of the law. Today, we are going to zoom out. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We don't want to miss the big picture in the midst of all of the details. The details are so important. We need to hold them up like looking at the different facets of a gem to see all of the beauty of the glory of Christ. But today, we want to zoom out and see the whole picture. To see at once all that Jesus Christ came to do and to accomplish in His earthly life and ministry. And so our big idea as we study Isaiah 25, a prophecy written hundreds of years to foretell what Jesus would accomplish by both His first coming and the second coming that we are still awaiting today, our big idea is this, that Jesus came to swallow up death forever. Jesus came to swallow up death forever. As we look at this prophecy, we see three parts here. In the first five verses, we see first a devastating storm of salvation. A devastating storm of salvation. Second, in verses six through nine, we see death swallowed up. Death swallowed up. And then third, and this is the question, this is the problematic part of this passage. One will have to wrestle with, what's it doing here? It doesn't seem to fit. Dunghill swimming, dunghill swimming, a devastating storm of salvation, death swallowed up, and then dunghill swimming. Well, let's look at first the first five verses, a devastating storm of salvation. To understand the passage we just read, I mean, it's not totally fair to just drop into the middle of Isaiah. Uh, This is such a, a long book, first of all. Uh, And it's also just a towering book in terms of its importance in the Bible and understanding the whole scope and and, and sweep of salvation. Um, Some theologians have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. We have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, They've called this the fifth gospel, written from the Old Testament, because it's so central in understanding the person and work and accomplishments of Jesus Christ. But to understand this passage in particular, without going into all that's happening in Isaiah, we actually have to turn back to Isaiah 24. If you want to flip the page back, I want to point, in in Isaiah 24, Isaiah foretells the judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. The entirety of the judgment that is looming over a wicked world where God is coming to undo creation itself as a curse and a punishment against the sin of this world. And the focal point of that is a city. It's not that God's judgment is going to fall just on one geographic location, one locale, one city of all the earth, but that this city is a symbol for all of the wickedness throughout all of human history. And we see this city talked about in verses 10 through 13, where we read that the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. 
There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. This city is symbolic. It's representative of the judgment that's coming upon all nations against the sin of all nations, against the sin of all the earth. And so we come into Isaiah 25, and if we're not aware of that context, then we won't think much of this first sentence, this first verse, but it's really important in light of that judgment to understand that Isaiah is praising God for this judgment. In Isaiah 25, verse 1, he says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. That's not just a generic praise. That's particularly reflecting the judgment that God is bringing against the earth. And we know that from verse 2. Here's that city again. For you have made the city a heap. Why do we praise God? Because he has made this rebellious city, symbolizing all the wickedness in all generations, in all cultures and civilizations throughout history. This city will be made a heap. The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. God's judgment is coming, and Isaiah praises God for this, which is why it's so unexpected. It's really striking in this passage to come to verse 3, where we read that this judgment doesn't lead probably to where we think it will lead. Look at verse 3. Therefore, as a consequence of what we just read, as a consequence of this judgment, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. This is shocking. The judgment of God leads to salvation. The judgment of God leads to the faith of the nations. The judgment of God leads the nations, these ruthless nations, to not only fear God but to glorify God. This judgment leads to salvation, the salvation of the world. Now, part of the way that Isaiah in this oracle describes the way that salvation comes out of this judgment is to depict God as a defense, a place of refuge, a strong wall against the storm of the, the ruthlessness of the nations. Look at verse 4, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. In Nebraska this time of year, we all kind of buckle in for the, the season of severe weather that we're going to face. And so this past Tuesday, uh, when the tornado sirens went on in our house, it wasn't entirely unexpected. We knew the drill, knew just what to do, got the kids out of bed, took them down to the basement until it passed. You know, I've been through so many tornado warnings in the course of my life, but every time I'm always mindful of just how vulnerable and precarious our situation is. I mean, if that tornado does descend and, and cut right through my neighborhood, if my house is in the center of the path of that tornado, it doesn't matter how strong of a house you have, you don't stand much of a chance. You do your best, you get in the safest place in your house, but you are always utterly exposed. You're always vulnerable. You are always completely dependent upon the grace of God. Now, that's always true, but when those tornado sirens go off, you are reminded of that afresh. But God, 
is depicted here as the stronghold. In the midst of the whirlwinds and the tornadoes and the storms of this world, God is depicted as the refuge in whom we find shelter. God is the one bringing a storm of judgment, and yet God is also in some way, in some sense, the refuge from the storms of the world as our salvation. How does this work together? Well, keep reading. Part of the way through verse 5, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. Heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. The images here are all of weather. There's heat beating down of the world, and God is like the shade of a cloud to give refuge and defense to this. One weather disrupts another part of the weather. One part of the weather disrupts another part of the weather. You know, it was 10 years ago this week, April 14th, 2012, that there was supposed to be the tornado to end all tornadoes. That's how they talked about it a little bit beforehand, uh, raging through Lincoln, Nebraska. I know because I lived there at the time. It was also a very memorable event because Nebraska canceled their spring football game for the first time since 1949 because of this severe weather that was supposed to come through. Uh, my infant daughter was not even three weeks old. Uh, my wife and I took her and even our two cats, and we went to my in-law's house into the basement. They had a basement. We did not at the time. We wanted to go somewhere safe because of the violence and devastation that was going to rain down on Lincoln. And I remember early that morning, it was cold, and then a little bit later that morning, the temperature swelled very high. When you have those two fronts, the cold front and the warm front, and when they collide, and this is what meteorologists were looking for, that is a recipe for a devastating storm of salvation. But I remember around noon, and this actually delayed the start of the spring game, around noon, a small rain shower crept up. A small rain shower crept up, and it wasn't much of anything, but there was a little bit of lightning, and so they had to delay and postpone the spring game until eventually they canceled it all together. But eventually, that storm never came. Understand, people from the Weather Channel had flown in to, to, to journalistically show what was about to happen here. And this tornado never came, and as they explained it later, apparently that small little rainstorm sapped the energy from that warm front and that cold front. One part of the weather interfered with another part of the weather, so that the judgment and the devastation never came. And this is what Isaiah is saying God is. In some sense, not only the raging storms of this world, but even the raging wrath of God, which is often portrayed as the devastating thunder of weather. Think of Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the Lord thunders free. God's wrath is depicted as the raging of the storms, and somehow in the midst of the judgment of God, the people of God are kept safe as a refuge. What's he talking about? Well, Isaiah doesn't make it clear here. We need the rest of Scripture to unfold to us how God can be both the raging storm as well as the shelter from the storm. But the Scriptures tell us very clearly this happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus came into this world, when God of God, the Son of God, came into this world and took on human nature so that He could suffer and bleed and die, and there as Jesus hung on the cross all of the raging wrath of this world, the wrath of the nations as He was nailed to the cross by Romans, condemned by His Jewish brethren. All of that fell upon Him, but not just that storm. 
It was also the storm of the raging wrath of God against us, against our sin. And all of that fell on Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus stretched his arms out to protect us from the danger that looms and lurks against us. The danger of God's wrath against us, his judgment against us, his curse against us. Jesus became a stronghold for us in the storms of this world and in the storms of God's own wrath against our sin. This is the story that Isaiah is looking forward to. But from that hill, that mountain, outside of Jerusalem on Golgotha, Isaiah skips past that in the rest of his vision to see far beyond that. Another day on another mountain, very close, on Mount Zion, where we read in verses 6 through 9, of another scene, another event, the scene changes very quickly where we see this second section where death is swallowed up. Maybe Isaiah's thinking in this passage, in this oracle goes like this. Well, this is the first part, the judgment that brings salvation. But no matter where you live, no matter when you live, even if you get through the raging of the nations in your day, what about death? Death comes for us all. We all must face it. What about the enemy of death? What will God do to disrupt death? And this is what we see in verses 6 through 9, where death is swallowed up. Again, a sudden shifting of the scene. No longer are we talking about the scenes of the world, the city of this world. No longer are we talking about Jesus becoming our stronghold and a refuge and shelter on the hill of Calvary, Golgotha. Now we are on another mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, inside the city of Jerusalem. In verse 6, on this mountain. How do we know we're talking about Mount Zion? Well, again, Flip the page back, Isaiah 24, verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns. He reigns as a king on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Well, back to 25, verse 6. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. The biblical background to what Isaiah is talking about here, where God feasts with his people on a mountain, goes to yet another mountain, to Mount Sinai, back in Exodus chapter 24, where God made a covenant with his people. And then after he had made a covenant with his people to seal, to confirm, to ratify this covenant with his people, he called up a representative sample of his people. Moses was there, Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest was there, Aaron's two sons who would be the priests after him should have been, they died before this, Nadab and Abihu, they were there, and then 70 of the elders of Israel were all on top of that mountain. Remember at the end of 24 where it talked about the Lord as glory being seen with his elders? Well, that's again reminding us of Exodus 24, where on that mountain, this representative group of God's people We read, they beheld God and they ate and drank in Exodus 24, verse 11. This was a foreshadowing of the great feast that God's people would enjoy with him. What Isaiah looks forward to here, all of that was foreshadowing this same scene. But look here, now there is no more representatives. It's not that the elders alone will be on the mountain with the Lord. We see that not only that, but all God's people will be there. And not only all God's people, we see that this is a feast for all peoples everywhere. In the previous section, we saw that God's judgment was coming against all people. Here, the feast is for all peoples on top of Mount Zion. 
Now, this is a rich feast. It has rich food. It has aged wine, well-refined. The description here of aged wine, it's, um, John Oswald talks in his commentary, he says, this was a practice of, of keeping the dregs, the ingredients uh, from the wine, continuing to soak in the wine. She so just left them soaking and soaking and soaking and continuing to give off their flavor until the time came to serve the wine. And that refers to the well-refined part. Then you would filter out those drags. So this is absolutely as flavorful and full of just aged glory on this mountain. They're going to eat from this rich feast. And here we are on the mountain of God with all the peoples. What's happening here? Well, this is a feast fit for the coronation of a king. Again, remember the last verse of Isaiah 24. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns as a king. This is his coronation party. This is when he is proclaimed king over all the peoples. But this isn't just a party. This is a momentous shift in all of human history. Nothing from this point on will ever be the same. Because in verses 7 and 8, we read that the Lord swallows up. First, we read the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. This is probably referring to the death shroud. Uh, covering an individual, but symbolically the shroud of death as a whole that covers all peoples and all nations. But to make it very clear in verse 8, we read again, he will swallow up death forever. Now, this is a great reversal because it is death. It is the grave. It is Sheol, the Bible says, that swallows us up. That's the main problem that we have. Forget about these nations. Forget about the rebellion of the world. Our biggest problem is with death. That swallows all of us up, no matter what we escape from this world. But here, death is not swallowing us up. The Lord is swallowing up death forever. And in that, He is taking away the reproach of all the people. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. Our shame, our sorrow will forever be removed. We will no longer have those questions that we have at every funeral we encounter in this life. But I want you to see also the universality of this. Uh, Alec Motier points out, notice how in verses 6 and 7, twice we read of all peoples. And then in verse 7, we read about all nations. All peoples, that'd be a reference to the ethnic groups, the tribes and the languages, whereas the nations would refer to the political entities. All peoples, all nations. And then in verse 8, we come to all faces. That God's going to wipe away the tears from all faces. Every individual will be, inter will be able to interact with God on this mountain. And all of these peoples, all of these nations, every individual has become, in verse 8, his people. God's people. And the reproach of God's people he will take away from all the earth. Well, in this scene, it's not hard to see why in verse 9, Isaiah will return to the praise that he began in verse 1. In verse 9, he says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Now again, Alec Motier in his commentary points out, notice the confession here. Notice the declaration. Part of this is subjective and experiential. This is our God. We have waited for Him. But then it turns objective. He's not just our God, some small tribal deity in some remote corner of the earth. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. This is our God. This is Yahweh. And we read that all of this is happening. It will be said on that day. This great confession of praise will happen on that day. Well, once again, 
Isaiah is looking forward. But he's not only looking forward into a time that is still in the future for us. He's also looking forward. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. He's looking forward to Jesus' resurrection. Because what we're told in the Scriptures is that the resurrection of Jesus, what we are celebrating on Resurrection Sunday, is not one event and then there will be another resurrection later that it will be a different event. We are seeing two, uh, two um, parts of the same resurrection. They're described as a single harvest where we have, with Christ's resurrection from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits of a harvest, the first ingathering of the crops. So then at the end, when Jesus returns, He will bring in the rest of the harvest. He will bring us up from the dead with Him, and this will be one harvest. So His resurrection is our resurrection. But it's on that day in the future when we will see all that Christ came to accomplish and to begin in His first coming and all that Christ will bring to its completion at His second coming. This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. You know, we live in an age of anxiety. Now, this isn't because we suddenly have new pressures that people before us didn't deal with. In the past, people dealt with death, and death was actually much more present in the ages past. But we live of an age, in an age of heightened anxiety. And one of the biggest reasons for this is our technological ability to share or to broadcast the things that we are doing. This has given rise to what people call the fear of missing out, FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And this especially is striking teenagers. Teenagers have a far higher sense of anxiety and depression and tragically rates of suicide than other people uh, than other people in the past. And it's because a lot of people have traced this to social media. We see all of these parties going on. Someone else is doing something that we're not able to do, and that can be a crushing weight. Why wasn't I invited? Why am I not there? My life isn't as exciting as all of that. When we come to this story, this oracle, this prophecy, and Isaiah is broadcasting to us the party to end all parties, the greatest party from all human existence. Here it is before our eyes, and we should fear lest we miss out on this event. We should fear lest we are not involved in this party, because even though this is for all peoples and all nations, this will not be for every last individual. And Isaiah makes this clear in the final section, in verses 10 through 12, where we come to this odd section. How does this fit in, this dunghill swimming? It's a graphic, vile section to this passage that seems so out of place next to the glorious uh, coronation feast of the Lord. But there is right here a purposeful contrast. On one mountain there is a great feast as Yahweh is celebrated as king over all his people. But in verses 10 through 12, we come to yet another mountain, the mountain of Moab. Verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw trampled down in a dunghill. Mount Zion is a, is a glorious mountain where the Lord is coming down in his glory and dwelling with his people. And this other mountain, Moab, is contrasted as nothing more than a dunghill a filthy, smelly pile of dung. That's what this text is telling us. Now, why is this telling us this? 
Well, it wants to, it's not just picking on Moab here, although Moab was a particularly arrogant nation against the nation of Israel. But it's singling Moab to show us here that the world will tell you that there are other parties you can join. There are other places where you can celebrate. There are other places where you can be made happy and satisfied, perhaps for all of eternity. But understand there is no other mountain. There is no other party because there is no other Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He alone can save. He is the King who will reign on Mount Zion and every other mountain is a false counterfeit. And so this is depicted graphically, the fate of those who rebelliously, arrogantly, pridefully rebel against the king who has made a feast for all the peoples. We read in verse 11, he, the Moabite, will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. You know, as we have young children growing up in our house, it's a joy to see them become self-sufficient in their lives. We want to train them to gain life skills they're going to need to survive. But sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating when they insist, I can do it myself. Sometimes this means insisting I can do it myself when we are late and they want to buckle their own seatbelt and they can't quite yet. And it's just one more delay and child, let me help you. I can do it myself. Other times it's something they shouldn't be doing, something that is dangerous, something that I can see will make a mess. We've walked out and we've seen high stacks of things they've clearly climbed on to get something they really shouldn't have had from a high shelf and you think you could have been seriously injured, child. What were you thinking? Or you see a child just confidently, triumphantly carrying something you know will devastate your carpets if they spill it. I can do it myself. You want your children to have this sense of self-sufficiency. You want them to grow in these life skills that they can't survive without. The whole point of raising children is to send them out. But you also have to train them about their limitations, to be aware of what they can and can't do. And God is showing to us here our limitations. You don't have an answer for death. You don't have the means by any stretch of the imagination to throw your own alternate party on another hill. All you will get is swimming in a dunghill. There's a poignancy here. What do we do with death? Well, understand, we have no hope except for what Isaiah prophesies here. So our application this morning is from verse 9. Behold your God as you wait for the salvation of the Lord. Now on Easter Sunday, I'm very mindful that people have come here this morning from a variety of places. Welcome. It's really good to see you this morning. This is always true. We talk frequently about how we are a church of many stories who are united as one body in Christ, but this is especially true on Easter for those of you who have been here every week, uh, you know we've been working again slowly through the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we've been zoomed in on individual facets of Christ's glory of what He came to do. Today is an opportunity to zoom out so that we don't lose the forest for the trees. We don't miss the big picture in light of the individual details, as important as those are. This morning's message helps us to see the goal of redemption all at once. But for those of you here who are not here every week, 
Maybe you regularly attend elsewhere. Maybe this is your first time here. I want to absolutely make sure that you leave today having heard the truth that this, this uh, message points out in the fifth gospel and Isaiah, the prophecy that foretells so much about who Jesus Christ came to be and what he came to do. Isaiah is seeing a vision where he is foretelling a day far off in the future still. A day when Jesus Christ, the King, the King of kings, will come to judge the world. And on that day, we are told that Christ will condemn those who have rebelled against him. Those who have persisted in their arrogant pride, I can do it myself. Through whatever avenue that is for you, Jesus Christ comes to judge the wicked rebels who have resisted his reign and his rule. But on that day, Jesus comes to establish a feast forever. A feast on Mount Zion in a new heavens and a new earth where he will forever dwell with his people, where he comes to serve us at table as though he were a common servant and yet he were our Lord. He is our Lord. Where he comes to celebrate with us his victory forever because he comes to swallow up death forever. This is the hope that we have of the gospel. But there is a difference. Some will end not at this eternal, joyful party with Jesus, but some who do not look to Jesus in faith will spend an eternity separated from Him in hell. The difference between whether you spend your eternity and the dunghill of Moab or at the feast of Mount Zion has to do with whether you turn from your rebellious sin against God now and instead look to Jesus Christ who's come into this world, who lived the absolutely perfect life, who completely fulfilled every bit of God's requirements in His righteous law. And yet though He was perfect, though He was righteous, this same Jesus came to die. He came to give up his life so that as he stretched out his arms on the cross, he covered us over as a mother hen covers her chicks to shield us from the wrath and the storm of God. Not just the raging storms of this world, but to protect us against God's judgment that we have earned and deserved because of our sin. And as he gave up his life, he was buried in the grave, but on the third day, on Easter Sunday... Our Lord Jesus rose then from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, as the first fruits of those whom God is going to bring again from the dead. Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, we will be raised up with him who are looking to him with faith now. Jesus came to swallow up death forever. And when he returns is when all of this comes to its completion. This will be his coronation day. This will be the day when we will feast with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you want to be at that party, if you fear missing out from that party, then turn this morning to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn this morning to him. This isn't exclusive. Jesus Christ says, come, come. All those who are weary, all those who are sin and struggling, all those who are guilty, Wherever you are coming from, your sin is not too great unless you don't go to your great Savior. The heart of rebellion is this go it alone. I'm swimming for myself. I'm going to make this sink or swim on my own. I want to do it my way. I can do it myself. 
But this is the opposite of the heart of faith, which is captured in verse 9. The heart of faith will say on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. It's looking to Jesus Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's waiting for him to do all that he has promised in those scriptures. Have you turned from your own self-determination, from your own I-can-do-it-myselfness? Are you looking to Jesus Christ who died and rose again as your Savior, as the one who shed his blood from your sins? If so, oh, keep waiting and hoping on the Lord. But if you've never known Jesus, today ought to be the day. Every Lord's Day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But this day should be the day when you come to know Christ. If you want to know more, please come talk to me. I would love to tell you more about Jesus. But turn from your sin and look to Christ in faith and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us grace. I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would encourage us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that none who are sitting here today would miss out on this feast. I pray that you would open eyes and unclog deaf ears and that you would give soft hearts to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus as it's proclaimed in this prophecy written hundreds of years before our Savior's birth. We pray that we would love Jesus as we expectantly await him here on earth. Oh, Lord, let that day be such a joyous, wondrous day as we praise you for the wondrous things you have done, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Father, we pray, bring everything about that you have promised. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.